Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, the podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. And as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing this week, Chris? Doing well, Eric. How are you? Good, good. Uh, you know, lots of action happening. We're in full flight of uh, both the NBA playoffs and the NHL playoffs. It's a fun time of year because we're sort of getting uh, closer to those uh, those final rounds and those more serious games. Baseball's in full flight as well. They've passed the one-third uh, mark of the season. Things are humming along there. And, uh, you know, as I've said in a lot of prior weeks, it just feels more and more normal every week. Yeah, I'm I'm going to Wrigley Field this coming weekend, so I'm excited about getting back in the ballpark and hopefully feeling the excitement of uh, a real live event. You will uh, probably, depending on which day you're going, you will see the uh, Cubs New City Connect alternate uniforms. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun. Look, it's great to get back in the ballpark, and the capacity is now kind of rising in, in a lot of these stadiums, so that makes it even more more interesting. Right. So a lot to unpack this week. Some big international news for the National Football League. We've mentioned baseball here. They've got some on-field integrity issues that we're going to unpack. And the sports data space is just uh, a buzz with activity. But first, we've got a really great conversation with Mark Tatum, Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer for the National Basketball Association. Lots of news and happenings there. So stick around for that conversation with Mark Tatum and Chris and I will be back on the other side to take a look at the news of the week. Stay tuned. Very pleased to have on Sport Business Finance Weekly is our guest this week, Mark Tatum, National Basketball Association Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer. With the league since 1999, Tatum in his current role oversees an array of critical league functions, including its overall business and international operations, global partnerships, marketing, communications, and the highly regarded team marketing and business operations unit, better known as Teambo. Tatum most recently has been a key figure in the NBA's historic establishment of a new standalone NBA Africa entity in partnership with several strategic investors. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate you having me here. So let's start with the home here before we go international here. The playoffs are afoot here, and we just got some uh, pretty encouraging first-round viewership rating, 46% up from last year with, with a bubble, 3% up from two years ago. You know, obviously the Lakers and the Celtics went out, but sort of broadly, is this sort of return to normal in your mind, or what do you sort of think is uh, sort of driving this? Well, you're right. What I think is driving this is that fans are super engaged around the stories, the, the players, the new teams that are making their appearances here in these very playoffs. And so they're getting exposure to the Trey Youngs and the Devin Bookers and the Luka Doncic's and, and the basketball has just been fantastic. And so I think there's this new blood. There are new teams that are and new faces that are in the playoffs that are really driving fan interest, Eric. Mark, maybe from more of a macro perspective, do you think sports ratings are going to return to normal post-pandemic? Or do you think there were some things that happened during the pandemic that might result in permanent changes? Are people playing more video games? Are they watching more Netflix? Are there other things going on that may impact the future more generally of, of sports viewership? Yeah, Chris, there's no doubt that we're seeing overall, when you look at the industry, there are fewer people 
or, or people are engaging in sports in different ways, right? And so I think there will be continuous pressure around TV viewership. But the one thing that will still remain is that sports as a live viewing product remains extremely, extremely compelling content. And so even when overall viewership was down, the NBA was winning every night in terms of bringing that demographic of those young adults, those 18 to 34, 18 to 49 adults, and they were winning the nights. And so, you know, I think there is going to continue to be pressure on ratings, but I think that the way that people are engaging with sports content is evolving and changing. And I think, quite frankly, people are consuming more sports than they ever have. They're just consuming it in different platforms and in different ways. Before we move off of the playoffs here, you can't uh, discuss this without getting a little bit into the uh, in-arena issues and with the return of more robust fan attendance. Uh, the first round, we had some issues in several of the markets with fan behavior. Is this something that's going to have to be addressed more systemically? Well, it has been, Eric. We've taken this issue very, very seriously. We had a couple of incidents there in the first week. There haven't been any incidences since then. At that point, we've ramped up security. Our teams have been very focused on the issue. And quite frankly, I think the fans have monitored themselves and said, okay, enough is enough here. And I think you know what we're seeing is uh, so many fans over this last year and a half, it's been difficult for all of us. And this is many people's first time being back around people, being in that environment. And I think that you know we saw a handful of individuals who acted inappropriately and poorly what we also saw in those circumstances were other fans in the building calling out that behavior, saying this is not who we are. And so we're hopeful that throughout the rest of this playoffs, again, since the first week, there haven't been any incidences. And we're hoping that there's going to be a return back to the respect uh, that the fans have for our players. And, and we're seeing that now. Mark, uh, switching gears, you just completed a successful first year of the Basketball Africa League. How would you assess that first year? What worked well? What do you want to build on for the future? Chris, it was incredible. I actually had the opportunity to be in Rwanda for the semifinals, for the finals. And it was just an unbelievable thing to see, to have these four club teams from four different countries on the continent of Africa participating in the first ever BAL semifinals and then the, the championship. And the championship was just a well-contested match with some talented players. The MVP played basketball at, at Florida, won a championship there with Joakim Noah. We had a young academy player from our NBA academy in Senegal play for the winner of the BAL, the Egyptian team, uh, Zamalek. So the, the competition was great. The enthusiasm and response across the entire continent and across the entire world was great too. We had viewership from all over the world, including the United States and the Philippines and, and you name it. There were countries around the world that were engaged by this compelling basketball. And this was just year one. So I feel very strongly in uh, 14 African-born players in our league, players like Joel Embiid and Pascal Siakam, um, and then another a total of 55 players who have at least one parent that was born on the continent. So African players, there are no doubt, are having an impact on the court as well as off the court. And, uh, and we're, we're excited about the, the prospects of this new Basketball Africa League. 
So the MBA Africa business entity, this new standalone uh, unit that you've created, outside investors, uh, a valuation of nearly a uh, billion dollars. What was the rationale to bring in these outside partners and will there be more of them going forward? Yeah, Eric, we saw tremendous opportunity and we see tremendous opportunity on the continent, not just because of the talent is, that's there that I just I mentioned, but I also think from the business opportunity. So, you know, Africa, when you look at it as a continent, one of the most highly populated continents in the world with a billion people, and that had, they have a very young, fast growing population. Some of the fastest growing economies in the world are countries in Africa. The use of technology is growing very rapidly there in the access to mobile devices and to content. And so when you look at those different factors there and the affinity for basketball, you know, basketball is the number two sport there uh, behind soccer on the continent. And so when you add up all of those different factors, it turns into a really attractive place for us to make investments in. And that's why we went out and we got some strategic investors because Africa is a big place. And it requires local knowledge, local expertise. We've had an office there in Johannesburg in South Africa for the last 11 years. And that was founded and headed up by Amadou Gallo Fall. Um, we then opened up an office this year in Dakar, Senegal. But we need to have more local presence in countries across Africa. So we're planning to open up offices in Nigeria. We're planning up to open offices in North Africa in East Africa. And so we need to improve and increase our footprint on the continent, which will allow us to build relationships with local governments, local marketing partners, and fans in those specific markets. And so in order to do that, Eric, we really need partners who can help us do that, strategic partners who bring strategic value who've operated businesses in Africa, know how to get things done in Africa. And that's why we went out and sold a 8% interest in NBA Africa to these strategic investors. You have plenty to do, Mark, in terms of building out that Africa initiative. And the NBA has done a fantastic job of building itself globally across many continents. But I guess my question is, what's next? What is the next big frontier if there is another big frontier for you guys to conquer as you think about international growth? Chris, fortunately, it's a big world out there, right? And so we, we've, we've made significant investments in China. We talked about Africa and the opportunity we see there. India is a place where we see a tremendous amount of opportunity. Again, number two country in terms of population and, and will be the number one country here in the next couple of years, 1.3 billion people. As you know, Chris, we actually brought our first ever global games to India back in 2019. Um, that was the first sport of any North American sport, as a matter of fact, to host an event there. And it was incredible to bring Vivek Ranadive and his Sacramento Kings. And Vivek was born in Mumbai. And to have him come back and play in Mumbai uh, with his team was something to see. And so we're on Star TV there now, which is the largest TV operator there and, and broadcaster of sports in India. Um, so we're seeing we have an academy there. We have junior MBA programs there that are reaching millions of kids. Um, so we see that as a pretty big frontier. And then there's, there continues to be opportunities throughout the rest of Asia with the Olympics, obviously, in Tokyo this year. And they've been players like Rui Hachimura, for example, who are having an impact on the game and the following of basketball in Japan. The Philippines continues to be 
one of the hottest markets for us. They love basketball. It is the number one sport in the Philippines. Something like 92% of Filipinos are fans of the NBA. Wow. Our affinity there is just, you know, out out of this world. And, um, and so there are opportunities in Europe and LATAM, but, but those are the opportunities, Chris, that we see for us going forward. I want to shift gears a little bit to some new frontiers in team ownership. We've had uh, Arctos come in as a limited partner of the Golden State Warriors. You've changed some rules around how LP stakes are going to work. Where do you see this all going and what do you sort of broadly see as the role of institutional investors in team ownership going forward? Yeah, it's, it's, it, we're fortunate that we're seeing these franchise, the values of these franchises increase significantly. And with that, it's attracting new sources of capital. And people, people view, institutional investors view the NBA as a great long-term investment because they believe in the plan that we've put together to grow our game, to grow our business around the world, including here in the United States. And and the prospects for our game going forward, the content that we're able to create, the revenue streams that we're able to generate. And so, you know, we're fortunate that it's attracting these institutional investors and different sources of capital are looking to be infused into the sport, into our clubs. And we think that that's a, a overall a very, very positive thing. Mark, do you see a day when a SPAC could own an NBA team? I know that's sort of the next level of new financial uh, kind of opportunity, but what, what's your view on that? Yeah, Chris, I think we, you know, we've been following the SPAC world obviously very, very closely. I, I will tell you, I think, you know, the, the keys where we see successful franchises in the NBA are those organizations where the, the governor, the person that is responsible for running that team lives in that market, believes in that market, is visible and is making the investments necessary. And so, you know, I still think that that is a, a model for us to have that, that primary governor who everyone says, hey, that person is, is really in charge of, of building, of bringing a championship to that particular market in that city. I think, again, institutional investments and different vehicles for infusion of capital into our teams will be an important part I think of the overall mix going forward. And so I, you know, we continue to monitor it, but I still think the things that have made franchises successful in the past will continue to exist going forward. We're uh, just about unfortunately out of time here, but just in a matter of seconds here, perhaps uh, you guys have been so out front really helping to sort of set the tone of American legal sports betting. You could sort of just give us a very quick assessment of where you see yourselves at this now later stage in, in the development. Yeah, it's incredible where how far we've come in the last several years where you know sports betting was largely illegal to now having you know many many states you know have more than half the, the country basically with legalized sports betting and so we think it's a good thing, right? We think that there's been much more transparency quite frankly around sports betting around the country and um, and that's a good thing. We also think it drives engagement of our fans. And we're seeing that part of, I think, the uptick in viewership and engagement on social media is because as people invest money in sports betting, they follow the sport more closely. And so we're seeing that. Um, And we've got great partners. We've got great partners in Sport Radar and FanDuel and MGM, particularly that we work with to promote responsible betting and, and sports betting and 
and we're creating programs, you know, uh, free to play programs, pick, you know, NBA pick them and those kinds of things for the more casual fan who, who, who is not ready to do sports betting in a big way, but they still have the opportunity to engage with the sport in that kind of way. So it's going to continue to evolve, but we think overall it's been a positive thing for the engagement of our fans in the sport. Well, we want to thank uh, Mark Tatum, Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer from the NBA for spending this time with us. Obviously, a lot more to unpack going forward here in the next handful of weeks are certainly going to be uh, very exciting here as we get into the later stages of the playoffs. And uh, we thank you again for spending this time with us. Eric and Chris, thank you for having me. I appreciate all that you guys do. Thank you. Thank you. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Mark Tatum from the NBA again for spending that time with us here. And as we uh, move to the news of the week here, we're going to start with uh, your, one of your old stomping grounds, the National Football League. Uh, it's been uh, no secret for years that uh, they've got big global ambitions and, and really sort of putting the rubber to the road here. We had uh, the big new international play plan a couple of months or so back where starting next year, each one of the 32 teams will be playing outside of the United States on a, on a rotational basis uh, at least once every eight years. And now we've got news this week of uh, a formal request for proposal from the league. They're looking for partners to help stage regular season games in Germany beginning as soon as the 2022 season as well. And they're looking for bids from cities and they're looking obviously for a market that will support supply not only a suitable size but a uh, uh, an NFL ready venue where they can stage a, uh, a regulation game with uh, all the requirements that go into that here they've been doing games in London for a number of years now and this is a big move into mainland Europe well the London games have been successful and Eric as you recall when NFL Europe was running several years ago a number of those teams were in Germany and, and some of them were very well attended games and, and and strong fan bases so it's not a surprise to me that the NFL is looking to to get into Germany and then ultimately other countries when you think about it at a very high level you know the league just finished most of its media deals now they're thinking about growth over the next 10 20 30 years and, you know, there's 300 million people in the U.S. and there's almost 8 billion people in the world. So there right. are a lot of other places for the NFL to grow and to build their business in the, in the way the NBA has done, uh, as we discussed with Mark. So I, I expect to see more aggressive plans as we go forward with the NFL in, in the global arena. Yeah, and, and your comment here about sort of uh, some of the uh, finished business here domestically in the United States uh, is a good one. And it recalls a conversation that we had with Chris Halpin from the league a few weeks back that you sort of take a look at what they've done here just uh, in the first half of 2021. They got their domestic media situation settled well into the next decade. They did a big global data rights deal. They've sort of reestablish themselves as to how they want to operate in the legal sports betting market. They've got long-term labor peace with the NFL Players Association. You know, a lot of that core domestic business is done here. And again, sort of thinking about the themes that we got into with Chris, that this really is a big next frontier for the league and one that could be really, really impactful. 
Absolutely. And as you know, Roger and the owners have very big revenue ambitions and, and yes. growth ambitions. And when you think about where can you find those, certainly overseas is, is a big opportunity. Uh, certainly, there's going to be things like NFTs, which we've talked about, and there's going to be different kinds of opportunities it's still in the media space. They've got the Sunday ticket deal ahead of them as well. But I would say in terms of the next big frontier, I, I do think international really presents an opportunity, but it's going to be a long-term play and it's going to take time uh, to do it right. So looking specifically at mainland Europe, it seemed like kind of a no-brainer that they would want to go towards Germany. You mentioned the heritage before with the World League, which became NFL Europe and then became NFL Europa before that shut down in 2007. But more recently, uh, Germany set records uh, for Super Bowl viewership each of the last three years, big numbers for NFL shop sales, fantasy football uh, participation, uh, Madden consumption, you know, on and on, all those sort of key markers. And then you when you look at Germany being the largest economy uh, in continental Europe, it seems like a fairly no-brainer that this is where they would want to start. Yeah, I think they want to go to places where they're very confident they will succeed and can build on the momentum that they already have. And I expect probably after Germany, they'd still look at other places in Europe to go next. Clearly, you have enormous populations in, in India and China in parts of Asia that could be ultimately places for the league to consider. And they had looked at some preseason games in China previously that never ended up coming to fruition. But I think for now, my guess is they're going to focus on Europe and, and look to other parts of the world uh, a bit later. Yeah, although this is where some of the geography, I actually think, uh, lends some advantages. You know, you sort of think about the hall that, you know, between Miami and Seattle or, you know, Boston and L.A. and sort of going from one sort of part of North America to another. But, you know, going from Paris to Hamburg or London to Rome or something, you know, we're talking about considerably less distance in a relative sense here that, you know, once you sort of start in one European country, it would, it would seem to think that you could move to the others in, in fairly rapid succession here. I, I do think that that can happen, Eric. And again, I think the league, you know, thinking back to the Europe League uh, experience or NFL Europe experience is going to do it, but probably do it in a way with the right product, as we've discussed, with the the actual NFL teams going and playing regular season games there, as opposed to, in a sense, a developmental league. I think they're going to do it with the right marketing, the right partners, which is why they're doing this RFP process. So I expect this sort of second big foray into Europe for the league to be a lot more successful than the sort of NFL Europe experiment uh, 20 years ago. And I think the other thing to maybe sort of think about and watch as this all develops is where the NFL just goes with its overall calendar and schedule. We have this big historic expansion to a 17-game regular season starting this year, first expansion to the the core uh, regular season since 1978. But there's a lot of folks who seem to think that that's just a, a way stop along the way to 18 games. And the NFL is already pushing deeper into February with the Super Bowl. And you sort of think about where they want to go, maybe even deeper into February and thinking about bye weeks and how this European travel plays itself out here. You know, we could have some fairly seismic changes into the sort of overall league calendar. We could. And, I, you know, there are always competitive issues with that. If you're going to make this team travel, how is that going to affect their position and they've got to get back home and they've got to have days of rest. And obviously the Players Association always has some things to say about these changes as well. But I do think that the focus on global and more games overseas is something that's just going to continue to accelerate and, uh, and, and the business will drive some of those competitive decisions in, in certain cases. 
Yeah, you're you're recalling uh, the annual complaints that your old friend Howard Katz would get every year after the schedule was released, and and some of those things, unfortunately, are inevitable. That Seattle's always going to travel more than the two Ohio teams of the Steelers. It's just the, the the way the map is laid out. Some of these things are unavoidable here. But as we do more of these European games, I think your point is well taken that there's going to have to be a holistic framework to make this as equitable as possible. And this sort of gets back to the international play plan where nobody's going to be on the hook for these games necessarily any more than any other team, that there is an even rotation that they've set up and everybody's bought into that. Yeah, I think that's that's the key is that everybody's going to have to take their turn. And at the end of the day, this is an, an entertainment product and the ability to, to kind of serve other audiences in different parts of the world is is such a big opportunity that I think they'll figure out the logistics on it. So shifting gears here from baseball to football here, and as we mentioned at the outset, uh, you know, baseball uh, sort of moving into uh, the second third of the season here or moving closer and closer to the All-Star game, which has been, of course, relocated from Atlanta to Denver, Colorado. But they've got some real on-field integrity issues here. And the last sort of week, 10 days, two weeks have been just dominated by sort of new rounds of cheating allegations and what's going on with both the ball and what pitchers are doing with the ball on the field. The phrase sticky stuff has become part of the popular lexicon uh, <laughs> of baseball here where there's uh, you know widespread allegations that uh, a number of pitchers are using various illegal adhesive substances, you know, various uh, elements of pine tar or sunscreen mixed with other elements. And, and sort of the core goal with these things is to get a better grip on the ball to increase spin rate, thereby movement, thereby making these pitches harder for uh, batters to hit. Now, these foreign substances are against the rules. The league is planning an increased sort of crackdown. But again, it sort of just speaks to sort of lots of questions sort of hanging out there in terms of the legitimacy of the product. Meanwhile, you've got Pete Alonso, the star first baseman of the New York Mets. He came right out in a session with reporters and, and said that Major League Baseball is intentionally doctoring the ball on a year-to-year basis, making it livelier or less lively based on the type of players coming up in the upcoming free agent market and sort of wanting to sort of uh, interfere with some of their stats and thereby impacting potentially what their future compensation is going to be. And I sort of take all of this and, you know, if you're sort of Rob Manfred, none of this can be good news because all it sort of just speaks to is inherent fundamental core problems with the primary product on the field. It takes away from what you really want the message to be, which is the ballparks are filling up again. It's great to get to the ballpark with your family, have a hot dog, have some beers, uh, watch some great baseball, talk about some of the competitive races that are going on and these divisions. And unfortunately, the headlines have been filled with some of these allegations and charges and issues. And that's certainly something that Rob, uh, Rob does not want, but uh, he'll just have to deal with, uh, as, as all the leagues do when these issues come up. Yeah, and it just it sort of extends what has really been kind of like two plus years of just a cascade of some really unfortunate news that we had all the struggles last year between the the league and the union to come up with a framework to get the season started. That matter is still the subject of competing grievances now between uh, management and labor. And now they've while that's all happening, they've got the larger collective bargaining issue as their five year labor deal expires in December. And just this constant sort of drumbeat uh, of negative news here, you, you would have to think at some point this is going to have an impact on 
casual consumption, attendance, ratings as we get later into the season, into the playoffs. This this drumbeat bad news is going to have to catch up at some point. I think the big issue, at least in my view, is that the the Players Association and the league have this ongoing tension and concerns and mistrust, and that maybe prevents them from just figuring out together how to do everything you can to grow the game, uh, bring in new demographics, get people excited about baseball, get people excited about, again, the, the the new kinds of technologies and features and betting and everything else that's going on with the league that, you know, NFTs, they, a lot of very positive things happening. And I think if the players and the, and the owners could really work together, again, that's a little bit pie in the sky, to focus on that messaging that would do so much for the growth and the future of baseball, but instead we're we're really focusing a lot on the negativity, and and that makes it difficult. You raise some good points there, and, and uh, you mentioned betting. That for a sport that is, is historically had so much trouble in and around betting, we had Kenny Gersh from the league on last week, and the the league has come a, a very long way in a very short period of time in terms of its sort of maturation and development in the space with regard to legal betting. Here, how do you think some of that space and those kind of issues intersect with this on field integrity stuff we're talking about? The need to have pristine integrity profile, I think, is just paramount to betting succeeding going forward for all the leagues, not just the MLB. I think, you know, the, the leagues are taking in into account the kind of policies they need, the kinds of approaches they need to maintain integrity, to make sure there isn't some snafu, that there isn't something that, that basically blows up in their faces. But yeah, any even little around the edge issue around integrity starts getting people concerned because now, the, you know, the betting is legal, the, the, the leagues are getting fully involved in many ways. And so I do think that it's, it's, a, it's an area of heightened concern now that we have legal betting. Well, that that gives us another great segue here to another space that's been completely transformed by legal betting in the United States, and that's the data services market. And a lot of major players in that space, uh, we've talked about Genius Sports, the Sport Radar, Stats, all all these sort of players, and all of them are in sort of some throes of uh, significant change here. Genius, which just became public, they're working on a follow-on offering. There are reports of uh, Sport Radar looking at various structures to go public itself. Stats perform uh, reportedly on the market as well. Just a lot of movement, and this obviously comes just weeks after the big global data rights deal with the between the NFL and Genius, which we've also talked about as well. That this is a market that just it, the news keeps coming almost hourly, not even daily anymore. That you know the the sort of big seismic developments among these major players in the space they're really coming at a multiple times per day kind of clip. It seems now here beyond sort of the the obvious in terms of sort of the last three years in the United States with the maturation of uh, legal betting here. Where do you think this is all coming from? Well, in part, I mean, the, the obvious answer is the data companies are, in a, in a lot of ways, the glue that brings together the leagues and the betting operators and all of the constituents in the ecosystem. So these betting companies are doing, I'm sorry, these data companies are doing deals with all the betting companies. They're working with the leagues. So there's a lot of high profile transactions that are going on. The other thing that's happening is these companies, which may have started initially as you know, pure data companies are now expanding their breath a little bit. They're doing free-to-play games. They're doing affiliate types of activities. They're starting to do data collection, not just data distribution. So they're starting to Motion get involved in, in, yeah, in, in more parts of the ecosystem. So I think that's a big part of it. And then the other thing, Eric, as you mentioned, is you know 
Genius is a public company that the NFL owns a stake in. Uh, IMG Arena uh, is, is part of Endeavor. Yep, that's another one. Public. Sport Radar has some really prominent investors like Ted Leonsis and others. And the NFL, I believe, got a stake in Sport Radar several years ago when they did a deal there. And Stats Perform is owned by Vista uh, Equity. So, again, a lot of reasons why these companies are in the spotlight. But I think the biggest one is they are starting to spread their wings and get more involved in other sectors of the betting service, betting technology space, which is getting them uh, even more notoriety. Yeah, and this is another space, and this kind of gets back to some of the themes that we talked about relative to the NFL and what they want to do in Europe and elsewhere, that scale really matters here, globality really matters here, that this, uh, all of this sort of strikes me as a really big arms race to generate as much capital, generate as many tier one partners as you can here, because this is a real arms race going on here that the biggest will be the one that is the best and, is, and survives. Yeah, that it really does seem that way, Eric. And, and I think when you think about scale, first of all, you need scale because you have to write some big checks. Right. Some of these deals to to buy rights or to partner with these leagues require big checks. So that's part of the, the need for scale. Uh, also, many of these data companies are serving multiple, multiple sports. So they need an infrastructure not just to cover the four or five major sports, but to cover 50 sports around the world. And I think the other thing that you know is sometimes overlooked is – when you're delivering data and you're delivering real-time odds, you can't have a mistake. I mean, the costs of screwing up are really big. So again, you need these kind of big companies with big infrastructure to ensure, you know, again, almost the integrity in a different way in terms of the information and the data so that everything keeps running and you don't have glitches or screw-ups that really create problems. Yeah. And it, going forward, it seems like there's a real sort of challenge for each of these companies to sort of walk and chew gum at the same time here, where this whole scale and scaling up and business development component is going to continue to accelerate. But these companies also have to sort of still create and innovate and build new products that get them those next deals that, you know, there's a real pressure for them to sort of succeed and perform on multiple fronts here. Yeah, I think there are two kind of places the innovation is important. Number one in is the data collection. What kinds of new data can be collected and created and developed that people will care about, especially that that betters will care about. And there's no guarantee, by the way, that you come up with a new statistic that somebody's going to find it relevant. But but finding new kinds of data with sensors, with extra cameras is part of the challenge. And then the other challenge is finding new kinds of betting opportunities, sort of like the simple bets of the world that Chris Bevilacqua was on our podcast several weeks ago, where you're creating new kinds of markets, maybe in-game betting around different players and all kinds of other algorithms that can create those opportunities. So I see the data companies really needing to focus on innovation on a, in a couple of different areas to kind of stay ahead of the game. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you raise a good point about context here, because in talking with a lot of these companies and the leagues on the other side for years, that a lot of them will sort of complain that they're awash in data and a lot of it just doesn't mean anything. So to try to sort of develop new things that actually have resonance and truly lead to more wins and better decision making, that's really the secret sauce. And, you know, and there have been some wins in that area, but, you know, I don't think anybody's got a monopoly on that. 
No, and, and again, just as you say, just because you come up with a statistic doesn't mean it's relevant. The other issue that all of these leagues are facing in various ways is how to collaborate with their players associations to collect and use this data. In some cases, the players associations have okayed sensors in the uniforms right. to collect very price, precise data. In other cases, they haven't, and then cameras are, are, are used. There's debate about what data can be released and what can't and what's private. So again, we're still in the early days of this, but there's a lot of focus, a lot of investment, a lot of innovation because data really does fuel betting and, and everybody sees that as a growth vector. Sure. So as we close out another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, obviously we want to do our look ahead to the upcoming week. You've got this big trip coming up here, but uh, beyond that, what are you uh, checking out in the space? Well, I am uh, I'm watching the uh, the NHL playoffs and especially following the hometown now New York Islanders yes. and, and and their journey. I, I saw John Ledecky do an interview last night outside the stadium with a bunch of fans and just tremendous uh, excitement and, and enthusiasm there uh, on Long Island. And so we'll be interested to see how how far they go and then more broadly how it affects what the Islanders are planning with next year for their stadium and for other business interests that they're pursuing. Yeah, I've known John uh, for more than 20 years when uh, he first came in as uh, Ted Leonsis' partner with the Washington Capitals. And, you know, it's been a long journey for him. And, uh, you know, but I think uh, I would completely agree that they've uh, needed a new building for so, so long and they've got that. But it just more broadly to bring a real sort of presence and energy you know, the Islanders have had various owners over the years and a number of them haven't necessarily been out front. And I think, you know, as we've discussed, uh, you know, I think there's an element of retail politics to owning any sports team. And, you know, John's been, you know, there's been some missteps like anybody else, but I think by and large, being as visible and present as he has been and will obviously be as the new building opens, that's nothing but good news for Islander fans. Yeah, I think the fans appreciate that. And just seeing his kind of interaction with the fans and, and all the crazies outside the stadium, you know, John was right uh, in the midst of it all. And I'm excited for him and hopefully they can have a good run. And from my standpoint, uh, big changes in college football here. There's been obviously a lot of movement uh, around the uh, name, image, and likeness space and a lot more yet to come here. But the uh, the big piece of uh, new tangible news that's come down is that after sort of years of intransigence among, uh, within the college football playoff that they weren't going to move beyond the four teams, they've got a working group that's come out and said they're not going to just do eight, that they want to go to a 12-team format here. So that theoretically would allow every single power five conference winner and then a whole bunch of other teams to make it into the party here and then see what they can do. And I think this is just nothing but good news here that, you know, by some fan surveys that I've seen, college football is the number two affinity entity in all of American sports behind the NFL. Huge passion, particularly in certain segments of the country, such as the Southeast here. So to essentially just create more content among top tier college football. It's hard to see this as anything but a huge win. I agree with you, Eric. And when you think about it, if you're going to have 12 teams in, that probably means another 12 teams are in the hunt till very late in terms right. of potentially getting in. And so now you have 24, 25 markets which are really excited, enthusiastic. Because once you get in that tournament, any it's like March Madness, anything can happen. Anything can Obviously, happen. the better teams tend to win. But I, I went to school at Northwestern, big Northwestern football team team fan. We've had some good seasons, but now we we have a chance of getting in that 12. And so that, that, that makes it even more exciting for teams that typically finish maybe in the 15 to 30 in the rankings to actually have a chance to get into that playoff and, and, and make some magic happen. 
Yeah. And beyond all of that, and I completely agree with all of that, I just think at a very base level, there's a fundamental correction that's being made here that to come out with a four-team format when there are five conferences in the Power Five that by definition, you're going to leave out somebody. And in most years, it was the Pac-12 and some years it was some other folks. But, you know, the Pac-12 was usually the odd one out in this game of musical chairs here that and that just inevitably led to tension and bitterness and and recrimination and all that sort of thing. So to just correct that on that simple base level that all of those top tier conference winners presumably would, even though there's no automatic bids in this new format that's being proposed, that theoretically that they would all be functionally in, that's a big correction in and of itself. And then everything else that you're talking about, that teams six through 25, essentially, essentially all the top 25 going past Thanksgiving theoretically would be in it. Yep. And then again, I haven't done the math about how many extra games we now have for broadcasters and streamers, but obviously a a number of additional high profile games as we're in the holiday season. And again, that makes for good business for people in the sports industry like us. So, well, uh, uh, Bob Chapik and uh, Jimmy Patero uh, up with uh, Disney and ESPN as, you know, one of the big rights holders for that, that particular event. That's huge news for them. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's going to be exciting. Well, look, we'll see how that plays out. And there's always a lot of uh, politics in these kinds of decisions and different interests and the views. But that would be, I think, a welcome change and, and kind of broaden the base of people excited about college football. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.